I'm walking all alone down my yellow brick road and I stomp to the beat of my own drum. Got my pockets full of dreams and they're busting at the seams Going boom, boom, boom to my own song Welcome to Stacked Keys Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stackhouse. This is a podcast to feature women who are impressive in the work world or in raising a family or who have hobbies that make us all feel encouraged. Want to hear what makes these women passionate to get up in the morning? Or what maybe they wish they'd known a little bit earlier in their lives? Grab your keys and stomp to your own drum. All I gotta do is count one, two, three to my own drum. Whatever you do, it ain't nothing on me because I'm doing my thing and I hold the key to all my wants. I'm really excited today. I have a guest um, who's going to bring just a different aspect of of, uh, career and life. And um, I am excited to welcome Terry Peacock. So thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. Terry, if somebody were to ask you who you are professionally or personally, um, or maybe both, what would your response be? Um, professionally, I am a refuge manager with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I've been doing this job for, I think it's around 38 years now, uh, for a long time. Uh, all of my experience professionally has been with the Fish and Wildlife Service and in refuges, most of it in the manager series, which means running and being responsible for everything going on on the refuge. Uh, personally, I'm a wife, a mother, and a Christian. Uh, so those kind of describe the and grandmother now. So those kind of describe who I am personally. Well, that sounds like an exciting life. Um, when you say fish and wildlife, it brings up all great memories for me of of um, a daughter that I have, Tori, who kind of went in that direction in her um, undergrad and uh, degree. So. What's that like? And I mean, you're kind of in a field that isn't female dominated either. So, so what have those years been like and how have you seen them change? In the beginning, it was a little difficult uh, being a female in, in this field. Um, we had to deal with a lot of uh, attitudes of, of the male bosses that were a little different and they were a little surprised about having women in the service and us coming in and, and doing our jobs and taking men's, taking men's places in areas. Um, things have vastly improved over time with more and more women coming in the service and uh, people realizing that we're just as capable and can learn and do just like any other, other like any males can. So that's really helped. It was um, a little bit, you know, like I said, a little bit hard at first, but uh, we all stuck in there and, and hung in there and, and stood our ground and made sure that they knew that we were here because we were capable, educated, and can do the job just as well as anybody else. So um, I would not trade my job for anything in the world. Uh, I love working with the Fish and Wildlife Service. I always wanted to do something where we protected wildlife. I see my job as protecting wild places and wild things for the future generations. And that's what we really 
Most people who work in the Fish and Wildlife Service do it because we have a passion for what we do. And that's why we're here. Uh, I could have retired two years ago and I'm still here because I have a passion for what I do. Um, I thought the other day, well, you know, right now things are different within our administration and within our regional office and decisions being made. It's like, well, I really love this job and this place too much to walk away. So that makes it that makes it difficult. Yeah, you've had invested a lot. Yeah, so it, it would be hard to walk away from that investment. Uh, what's a typical day like? Um, a lot of it in this day and time is doing administrative. But a typical day also means working with my crews. Right now I have my uh, fire crew whose office I've overtaken today is down at Lower Swanee National Wildlife Refuge, which is part of our complex. So they're burning down there today. My biology crews are out trapping salamanders. Uh, we're interviewing for biological interns. My public use crews are answering phones and, and giving out information. Um, I've got staff over on St. Vincent who are working, getting ready for the sea turtle season, uh, tracking wolves, uh, providing information to our other partners on the sea turtle uh, projects that's going on over there. So I unfortunately am responsible for making sure that my wonderful staffs are capable, have the money and time and people they need to get their jobs done. And then I just kind of jump in whenever I have a moment or two break from my administrative duties to jump in and actually perform my biological duties for which I'm trained. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, but being trained in that helps you understand taking it to the administrative side of, oh, yeah. of what the needs really are. Being um, a refuge manager in the Fish and Wildlife Service is the hardest job to qualify for on the positive education requirements and on, on the, on the um, job requirements just for that reason, because we do have to make decisions. I mean, I might be deciding, you know, today what we're going to do with a building on construction and then tomorrow deciding how we're going to handle an endangered species so that we keep it from going extinct. So it's, it, you know, breadth of knowledge across the board is helpful. We're kind of a jack of all trades. Yeah. And, and it can have such impact. So tell me, um, think of your most favorite project. Um, and, and maybe something that you're probably, even if you shouldn't be, you're more passionate about that than anything else. Wow. That one's hard. Cause I've had so many across the years with the fish and wildlife service. Um, right now, my favorite project going on in the refuge is the work with the frosted flatwood salamander. And that's because when I went into college, I actually, at first was going to major in herpetology, which is the study of, of reptiles and amphibians. And so I almost majored in herpetology. And then I saw the wildlife curriculum and then switched with after my first semester to wildlife. But my heart still is, is with those little uh, reptile and amphibian creatures. And so this gives us an opportunity to work with an endangered species and to really take an opportunity to try to save one of these little small critters that people don't necessarily, they're not huggy, cute, cuddly up to everybody to be able to save that one from going extinct. Uh, it's only found on us and on the Apalachicola National Forest. So that's a really cool project to be involved with. Um, yeah. And also like the wolf program. I mean, they are cuddly and well, not cuddly, but they're, you know, people love wolves. They're they look like it. Fauna, they're cute. You know, everybody's happy about wolves. So that's a fun project to be involved with also. And working at St. Vincent National Wildlife Refuge, another refuge I'm in charge of, 
is part of the breeding program for the North Carolina release site. So we try to produce wild wolves. Unfortunately, the last couple of years, we've produced two that are pretty wild. They, we can't catch them to get them off the island. Uh, they seem <laughs> to be outsmarting us on a regular basis, but that's part of it, you know. Um, so yeah, those are, those are two right now that, that I'm involved in that are just really close to my heart. So as an average person myself, um, why do I care that these projects are going on? A lot of the endangered species have a place in the ecosystem and everyone should care that each one is important uh, in its place in the ecosystem. So we go back and determine uh, things like the salamanders are important because of water quality. You know, uh, they actually reflect they're declining because of uh, lack of burning and and any kind of changes in water quality can cause them not to be able to reproduce or not to be able to live until they become metamorphs until they get out of the pond. So you can look at a lot of these things are reflective of things that really have human consequences along the line. Uh, wolves, if uh, the wolves were the major predator the east, in the eastern United States, and now the coyotes have moved in, but they're a predator that helps keep things like deer and, and other animals that link your yard and your gardens and everything else in line. So, you know, those animals should be as important to you as some of the ones that maybe are a little more lovable. Uh, but, you know, everything, everything in our world ties back to our environment. And if our environment is not in good shape, then then we're not going to be in good shape. You said something about a lack of burning. And I think that there's been a lot of people that don't understand what burning is and does. So how does a lack of burning um, have impact there? And, and it's something that y'all have a division that, that handles. And um, so kind of talk to me yeah. about that. If you we can. have a zone fire, fire uh, division down here at the refuge that actually handles prescribed burning in Alabama North and North Florida. Uh, our zone will actually be increasing to cover uh, part of Georgia, maybe Tennessee and Kentucky here pretty soon. And prescribed wow. fire is very important in, the, important in this part of the world and has been going on here since the 1930s. And the reason for that is our pine ecosystems and longleaf pine, our, our slash pine ecosystems are what we call fire dependent which means they need, or, or, or fire maintained, they need fire to be maintained. Longleaf pine ecosystems are fire dependent. They don't exist without fire. And a lot of our species like our frosted flatwood salamanders um, evolved along with the longleaf pine. And so their habitat actually needs to be burned through every few years. And hopefully their ponds, which are temporary ponds that come in with the winter rains would hopefully burn through also. And so, um, People don't realize uh, the Southeast has been burning all over for a long time. If you notice the big Western fires out West, they have not burned in long periods of time. So you get a nice buildup of fuel. So when you have a lightning strike, it causes a catastrophic fire. In our Southeast regions where we have been doing prescribed fire, which means we go in and put fire in the woods under certain conditions where we can better control the fire. I'm not going to say we completely control the fire because we do have escapes and we do have issues, but under conditions where we're controlling the conditions under which the woods burn, we remove that hazard fuel. And so that helps prevent lightning strikes from causing catastrophic fires. 
Uh, most of Florida burned in 1998. We always refer back to that 1998. So even though we've been burning for years, we weren't burning enough because we had catastrophic fires all across Florida in 1998 that were wildfires. So the prescribed fires help prevent the wildfires and they also help maintain our habitats and our, our endangered species like the frosted flatwood salamanders and the red cockaded woodpeckers are dependent on those burns as well as most of the native species. Uh, a lot of the, the habitat down here gets too thick for even deer and turkey and other animals to walk through if we don't burn it on a regular basis. It gets harder and harder because you have a lot of people who've moved in close to the refuge and so we have smoke concerns that we have to consider. We have houses that we have to consider. So, you know, if you've got someone next to the refuge, you can only burn on a certain wind because you don't want the flames being carried toward their house. And so um, it, it gets harder and harder here to do those prescribed fires because we're having to work in and around people that live close to the refuge. Yeah, that, and so they're taking over kind of the the habitats and, yeah. and yet um, they want the benefits and maybe not the consequence of that. Um, We're very fortunate in this part of the country that we have what we call a license to burn. We have a social license in this part of the country a little more than other parts of the country. I work with a, a group called the Agency Administrator Workshop through the Prescribed Fire Training Center. And the people out West really, because of the wildfires and because of the concern, don't have the license to burn like we do in the Southeast. People don't really freak out that much over us burning in the Southeast like they do out West. So we're still trying to, to get that message across that prescribed fire is good, wildfire, not so good. Yeah, so there is a tremendous amount of education that goes on really day to day, moment by moment in your, your career. Yes, uh, educating other professionals, educating the public. We have an environmental education specialist here on the refuge. so. If COVID will ever calm down, we'll start bringing our school group back and working with school groups. Um, my staff, a lot of them serve on boards that serve working with education. Uh, they teach with the Prescribed Fire Training Center, um, teach at academies. Uh, so we do a lot of education in the public and in us. We, we have volunteers that come down. So we do a lot of explanations on our endangered species and what we're doing and how we're working with them and on our management, uh, water management and prescribed fire management. So important to reach out to the public and have them understand what we're doing and why. Is someone able to follow some of these studies or some of these projects? Um, can they kind of know what's happening and, and is there like a um, reports that come out or any, anything along that line? A lot of the reports are professional reports that aren't necessarily out for the public, um, especially on our endangered species, because we closely protect the locations of a lot of those species, because there are uh, opportunities that some people come in for commercialization of some of our endangered species. So we keep those uh, locations where we're working pretty on a pretty tight hold. But there are, um, we do put up Facebook posts that are not location you know, you can't get the location off the Facebook post, but we do keep people updated on the St. Mark's and St. Vincent National Wildlife Refuge Facebook page. Um, we have a, a group called the Friends of St. Mark's, and they have a Facebook page and, and a, put out a newsletter on a, about a quarterly basis. And uh, since they provide the funding for our interns that we use down here, typically they have a lot of updates on our salamander projects and our red cockaded woodpecker projects and other projects that we're working on. 
and do industries come to you? So when you, you talked about the woodpeckers, um, I know that in the utility industry, sometimes they have to kind of know what, I guess, I guess it comes through the federal regulations at that point. Yeah. But, um, but there's a lot of communication between construction and, and um, offices like yours, or there may be another stepping stone from that. Yeah. We're actually in the, um, the refuge side. There are two sides of the fish and wildlife service. There's the refuge side, which is where I work and we're, we're the land management branch of the U S fish and wildlife service. Okay. So we're actually on the ground implementers working in, in the land management areas, our ecological services branch, which is uh, our closest one is in Panama city. They're actually who industry comes to, to get permission when they're working in private lands areas that contain endangered species. So they would go through and do a section seven consultation or do a consultation with our ecological services office. And they would be the ones that would provide them guidance. Um, The only consultation we get are when like we have a power line or something that's going through the refuge and they check with us to make sure they're not impacting our woodpeckers or impacting any of our other endangered species. Mostly it's woodpeckers because a lot of the power line easements go through the area where we have the uh, red cockaded woodpeckers. But the ES office is the one who handles the consultation. And we actually, believe it or not, as another branch of the Fish and Wildlife Service, have to go through e- ecological service with our consultations whenever we're doing anything that concerns endangered species also. Wow. Yeah. So we go through the in, the consultation process with them. In cases like our frosted flight with salamanders, my biology crews are actually helping write the plan, the recovery yeah. plan, because they're doing all the research and work right now. So that's a little easier. I'm just calling the recovery biologist in, in the ecological services office and saying, hey, we're going to do this. Is that OK? And so he'll say yes or no. So, yeah. Terry, did you know when you started out that this is these are the things you could be doing? These are the ways that you could make a, an impact? I really didn't have a clue. Um, I had one of my my great aunts tell me one time she goes, you know, you won't remember this, but when you were eight years old, I asked you what you wanted to do with your life. And you told me that you wanted to run a place that was just for wildlife. I didn't know they existed. I didn't know that any of this stuff existed until I got to college. And like I said, I went in to a, um, to a wildlife society meeting and we talked about this. I had a refuge just down the road from me uh, where I grew up and I had no idea that National Wildlife Refuges existed. I just knew that that was what I wanted to do was to protect places for wild for wildlife. And so um, after I got in there, then I switched over to wildlife and started going to visit wildlife refuges and stuff. Uh, and now whenever I travel, I go from national park to national park and national wildlife refuge to national wildlife refuge to see, you never know, you know, what's out there and, and what I can see. Um, so, like I said, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. And my aunt said, you're the only person who at eight years old told me exactly what you were going to do with your life. And here so, you are. And here that, I am. Yeah, that's amazing. So talk to me about work ethic. Um, you definitely have it. Oh, so, yeah. So where did your work ethic come from? And and you're managing so many people. So just work ethic in general. I was uh, raised on a farm as an only child which, you know, there's always a comment of like, you're an only child. Oh, you must have been spoiled. I was raised on a farm as an only child. So all of the chores then naturally fell to me. 
Um, I had to get all the chores done and get my homework done and get everything else done. So, uh, you know, it was just uh, not a question, um, you know, hauled hay until I was 21 years old and other people get paid to haul hay. In my case, I was given a roof over my head and food to eat. So that was just expected. You know, it was expected that I go and do the chores and do the work. Um, the work ethic here, I think, on the refuge, we have a lot of staff members here on, on St. Mark's and they all have a really strong work ethic. My problem is not motivating my staff to get things done. My problem is saying, OK, guys, you got to take a day off every once in a while. You know, don't don't work yourself to death. Let's 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 take some time off. Let's do something different. And I think that goes back to most of the people who come to work in the Fish and Wildlife Service. It's a passion. It's not we came to this job just just to get paid, but we came to this job because we enjoy saving wild places and working in wild places and making sure that the habitat is right for the animals and making sure that we're getting things done. So um, I have been on other refuges where maybe the work ethic wasn't that strong, but here it's not. And, and we look for people when we actively recruit, we're looking for people who have that passion, who have that caring for what's going on out there because wildlife don't work a nine to five job. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, my, my biology crews, you know, Tori was down here with us as a, as an intern, our biology crews are out at five o'clock in the morning sometimes. And then we're out at nine o'clock at night. And sometimes we're out from five o'clock in the morning until nine o'clock at night trying to get stuff done because the animals don't punch a time clock. Um, you know, we'll, we'll get people time off when it happens. And so you have to have a really strong caring and passion for this to really work the hours that we do. So, um, yeah. yeah. So a day off, um, when you do have a day off, do you go away from the woods or to the woods? <laughs> I'm just as likely to be down here driving through the refuge on my day off as I am doing anything else. So, yeah, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, well, this past year, my husband's like, what do you do for a birthday? And it's like, well, I never get to go take pictures like everybody else does. So what do we do? We drive down Lighthouse Road like all the other visitors with my camera and I'm taking pictures out on the refuge. So, uh, yeah, that's that's always been kind of a promise. Like maybe I should get some other recreational activities that don't include my work, but you know, that, that's just the way it is. And like I said, even when we travel, uh, we go to other refuges or other parks to look at what, what they're doing and to see what's going on there. So yeah, it, it, yeah, that's where a lot of my recreation occurs is in wild places. Yeah. So how do you find, um, work-life balance? Um, I do spend a lot of time with my family. My husband is an outdoor person too. Uh, both of my children, were raised on refuges as volunteers and, and, and enjoy outdoors and my granddaughter's learning to enjoy the outdoors also. So it's just a matter of um, spending time with them in the outdoors. And also I'm very involved in my church. So a lot of times it's like, okay, the church, my church takes precedence over what I do in my work. So if I have something I have to do for church, then I'll take off and go do it. Um, I've taught youth at church. I've taught, I, I now work with the children's ministry. So I've worked a lot in children's and youth ministries at church and working with them. So that gives me some of that work-life balance. You bring up a thought to me of um, how do you think nature kind of impacts people to be better people or does it? I think it does. Um, we, uh, we were on a major shutdown I think it was 
2019. We were off for 35 days and we were not allowed to be on the refuge doing anything or working or, or doing any kind of stuff with them. And my visitors on St. Mark's were actually going through and emptying out my garbage cans and hauling off garbage because they care about the environment down here. Um, I think that that people, COVID was a really eye-opener for us because they declared outdoor activities as essential activities. And I have never seen so many people on the refuge as I have during, during the first year of COVID. People were coming down here and just reconnecting. And it was a safe place to get out. You could spread out. You didn't have to worry about masking. You didn't have to worry about catching anything. And it really, uh, we got a lot of comments on how important and special having this place there for them was during that period of time. So that was a real eye-opener for us about how much this refuge means to other people in the community, not just us. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize that, but how interesting to be, designated an essential activity. Yeah. Outdoor um, recreation in the state of Florida was designated as essential. So you could continue that even during the quarantines and stuff that they had early in the COVID outbreak. So it was, it was a shocker for us too. It's like, okay, now people have really found us. We get 350,000 visitors a year anyway, but now it's like, okay, cool. Now the whole world wants to come down here, <laughs> uh, which is nice because it gives us a chance to educate them as to what we do. So. Yeah. But with it can come the the angst of having more customers. I mean, uh, a lot yeah. of restaurants were having the problem of they had the client base. They just didn't have the ability or the product or right. whatever. So can, is that a, a new stressor for you too? That remains to be seen how, how, if it's going to continue to increase our public use, um, Right now, we've been okay because a lot of our, our refuge is a very linear refuge along the coast. So we stretch about 48 miles along the coast. And a lot of our public use is concentrated in one area where people drive down past our visitor center and drive down to our lighthouse. So it's not, they don't get out into the back country as much. We have just a few people that get out into the back country. Yeah, so that that gives you a little bit more. Um, I guess you know what's coming, and you know what the people are looking for to do. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, you know, we get a lot of visitors that drive down there, and and we do have some concerns, especially on the weekends. You know, Lighthouse Road is not very wide; it's more of a levee, so it's not very wide. So we don't have a lot of parking, and so we have people just stop in the middle of the road taking pictures and things like that. So. You know, it, it does have its issues, even on Lighthouse Road. Um, people just get excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, how about leadership? What do you consider to be an, an, an essential leadership quality? I am very careful to consider things that I assign to my staff. And I am unwilling to assign anything to them that I'm not willing to do myself. Um, if it's something that I would not consider, they need to know that I'm going to be there for them to back them on whatever they're doing. And they need to know that if it if they're short, I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty and step in and, and, and get right alongside them and do whatever needs to be done. And so... Um, to me, that it, it, it's leadership by following, kind of. You know, I allow my staff to have the, the ability to think about what they're doing and, 
and I'm trying to find them the money, people, and time they have to get the jobs done that they want to do. Um, I always joke on them. It's like, okay, now let's let's be thoughtful in what we do because don't make me pull that refuge manager card. So I don't I don't like to pull that that boss card unless I absolutely have to. Uh, we try to work together as a team, and that you know. And then, like I said, I don't have trouble motivating my staff to do things. I have trouble getting them to back off and not yeah. do as much. Uh, so that that's where the the issue comes when you've got people that are that 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 caring. Um, yeah, so, people are always interested. I still go out and chat with my salamander crews at least once a year. It's like, okay, I'm 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 putting it on the calendar and that's sacred and I'm going out to, to go trap today or I'm going <laughs> to go do this to I'm going to go ban woodpeckers today just because. And so people show like you still take time to do that. I'm like, yes, because that's the important thing that's happening and they need to know that I feel that's important. Yeah, yeah. And still knowing what it's like to do that. So oh yeah. Did some of that leadership philosophy come from as you climbed the ladder and as you were seeing leaders and seeing good leaders, bad leaders? Yes, it does. Looking at refuge managers who, who mentored me throughout the years, um, you know, it was always, uh, you can't run the refuge from your desk. You can't know what's going on on your refuge. If you're always behind the desk, if you're always not being involved with the crews. Um, we work, it's harder here because we work in two separate locations. So I make sure that I show up in the morning where my crews start work. So they see me and can ask me questions and, and feel like they have access to me and I always make sure they know. And, and that comes through growing up on refuges, I guess I should say career wise, where we were always had to do everything. It wasn't, you know, we don't necessarily have the staffs that the park service and the forest service have. So you had to learn a little bit about everything going through the day so that you could direct your crews and supervise your crews. So um, I came in through small refuges where we did a little bit of all of it. Yeah. So there's a little familiarity, even if the processes have changed or the tools, has that been a big difference? In- oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, always, I have a, a, you know, the GIS, I still, I'll be honest. I'm old school. I couldn't tell you how to run a GPS. I couldn't tell you how to work GIS, but it's wonderful. You know, I go to my, 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 uh, I've got a forestry technician who knows I love maps. So every year I get my new maps, you know, when the year changes and they redo the the fire maps, I get maps from my office wall. He makes them for me. And, you know, I came across the other day, we were cleaning out our old visitor center because we were doing some work up there. And I came across all the hand-drawn maps we used to have to make. And it was like, a fire map for me was a map that they produced in the regional office and I colored in the blocks. <laughs> so that, that's what my, that's how my career started. Um, I didn't touch a computer until I was like five or six years into my career. So the computers have changed it in good ways and bad ways. You know, it used to be, you could say, well, the mail didn't get here in time or I didn't get that fax. So and now they email you stuff and want answers 10 minutes later. It's like, well, I'm sorry. I was out in the field. I'll get it to you when I get back to the office. So good and bad, but things like, you know, the, the technology we have now with the Vinza maps on our phones, you know, it can direct you right to where they want you to go. They can drop me a, a map in the email. I can load it on my phone and drive right to them. So uh, it's um, really good. I, I tell my crew here, I said, when I become one of those old curmudgeons that say, hey, technology's bad and I can't deal with this new stuff, you guys need to start forcing my retirement papers out. On me. get out it's time to move you know it, it's 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 been wonderful to see how technology can help us do things um 
I've been out with our forester, you know, marking timber and everything's on the iPad. She can direct us to where, you know, it's like, okay, here's our next uh, plot because it's all laid out on the iPad. So we walk from plot to plot using the iPad to navigate through the woods. So it's just, um, yeah, a lot different than our old compass days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, you kind of have to have that old part too. I mean, there's a little bit of of missing that aspect of understanding. And actually we have had some of our uh, fire refreshers where we actually did orientation courses just to make sure that our students and young people coming in could still orient with the compass because you get in a lot of our places and you don't have satellite reception, your, your phone doesn't work and your iPad doesn't work and your GPS doesn't work. So we do make sure that we yeah. can still old school it when we have to. Yeah, that I would think that would be a tremendous um, yep. backup asset. So, but you, you mentioned a lot of times people are expecting things instantaneously. Um, and it, when you're out in the woods, you don't really want it to do instant. So right. has that been a real drain for you too? To Yeah, to a lot of the, the instant need for data that our regional and Washington offices come up with stuff. And, and that's kind of been a drain with, with COVID because I think they're not back in their offices yet. You know, our regional office hasn't returned to their office. Our Washington office hasn't returned to their office. So it's easy when you're sitting at home to come up with a new data call, but they don't seem to, to have the comprehension that, hey, we've been here the whole time. Um, right. I was, the only time I have worked from home was when I was actually quarantined during the COVID because like I said, I don't ask my crews to do things I'm not willing to do. So my biology crew, when COVID first started in 2020, were in the middle of our salamander occupancy trapping. And it's like, if you guys have to be on the refuge, I'm going to be on the refuge. I'm your air cover. I'm here in case you have an accident or need somebody to get to you and you can't get to anybody. So um, yeah, so that, and, and, you know, we get a lot of data calls and it's like, well, I'll get it as fast as I can. And it's like, okay, we need this Friday. Well, I was on vacation this week. Sorry. You know, so it's, um, yeah, so it's, it's been a little harder with those kind of instant want for information. So try yeah. to get everything that's important to them if I can. And if not, they're just going to have to wait, you know? I think that crosses so many industries and, um, and, you know, the, the younger ones coming in, they don't remember. Um, I'm in advertising and we used to have to whack something up overnight. It was a, a big new oh, yeah. blessing. Yeah. And, but you still knew you had, a 24 hour period before it was going to hit your desk. Right. And now right. it's like within two minutes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that can be tough. Um, well, well, there's so many attributes that you bring to the career um, and your typical day really isn't typical. So and finding the balance, you know, there, your balance is kind of a give and take. What would you tell somebody who's, who's coming out, looking for a career, looking for, for planning family, what kind of advice would you offer? What we always say when we're getting ready to start a project or do anything, um, particularly this comes a lot from our fire crew, is that we have to be fluid because flexible is way too rigid. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you come in and, and yeah, you may have your day planned out, but you know, 
somebody gets upset about something that happened on the refuge, it's like, okay, I got to stop and deal with that now. Or, you know, um, a fire gets out or we need extra people for prescribed fire. So I'm on the phone looking for people or we need an extra volunteer to help get something done. So you just have to, to be fluid. You can't be rigid and coming in and saying, well, this is what I'm going to do today. It's like, this is what I hope to do today, but let me see what the day brings. And, you know, you just can't, like I said, it, it's it's been stressful here lately because we haven't been able to fill positions. And I just look at my crew and I said, we will do what we can do. And that's all that we can do. So don't stress over what we can't do. Let's find what's the most important thing to do and we'll do what we can and then just move on. Um, but like I said, with a crew with a work ethic like mine, it's hard for them to accept that we can't do everything anymore because we don't have the staff to do it. So, yeah. And that's got to be hard when you know that all it would take would be, you know, a little bit more staff or a little bit more um, this or that equipment or or money. So do you have to kind of um, fight or justify on the the political side of of all that? Do you have to kind of advocate um, outside of your office? Yeah, it's it's not as much of... um advocacy it's in uh, education uh just recently we had congressman dunn uh and his entire staffing office visit us on st vincent national wildlife refuge and um you know they they wanted to come visit and we we invite always encourage and it was it's really amazing to have a congressman himself show up because it was him and his office and we had him for like three hours which is you know my staff was going man like it is unprecedented to have that long with a congressman on our refuge of course we have to get there by boat. So once we had them over there, we were kind of trapped. We couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. You know, it's like, we got them as long as we want, really. I mean, we can keep and, and I think the there's something not, wrong with that thought. Yeah. And, and, and the issue is like, it wasn't them wanting to get off. It was like, okay, we had to haul a bunch of vehicles over to, to tour them around. So we had to get everything off. And it's like, I need to get my staff off in a reasonable amount of time. So we need to be heading towards the, you know, towards the barge and loading you guys up. But, you know, they were like, well, we don't want to go over issues. You just want to come visit. And I'm like, that's fine. All the issues I have will be readily evident when you show up on my refuge, you know. So uh, nice to see them do that. Our biggest advocacy is with our leadership and our regional office and our Washington offices, not as much Congress as it is with them and and advocating for the fact that we need positions that, we, you know, positions on the refuge and competing somewhat with other refuges because of the funding and, and staffing issues that we have inside the Fish and Wildlife Service. So that's where a lot of my advocacy is. Wow. But that that's a whole nother side of the brain. Oh, yeah. So, so you you do have to kind of spread thin, but work, work thick. Yeah. Um, so do you have any regrets career-wise or... Um, just personally, this is just a regret that you're like, God, I wish I'd. Not really. Um, the only time I do have regrets is when I sit down and, and visit with my interns who are here and they're doing projects all over the country. A lot of our interns come through and they're really just paid a stipend to come down here and work and they are excited to come and work with our endangered species program. And then they're excited to go to the next level of, of working with another group or going to another part of the country um, or moving to another area to do another project. Um, I don't think I would like the insecurity of moving around every six months, but 
maybe when I was younger, instead of coming straight to the Fish and Wildlife Service, that would have been kind of fun, <laughs> you know, to get to work with different projects like they do. Um, I've been fortunate that I've worked all over the country. So I've worked in different ecosystems and in different habitats and different parts of the, of the United States and have done some detail, did, did a detail on duck banding up in Canada. So I've had opportunities like that, but not, you know, that, that would be my only regret was that I, I came to work for the service immediately instead of what some of these young people are doing now. Yeah. So that's probably a little bit of advice back to the young people that are coming through of take advantage of those opportunities yeah. when they come. Tori and my was, advice to them is also, if you can get a permanent job with the Fish and Wildlife Service, take it, no matter what you're doing. We have a biotech here who we couldn't hire in our biology program. She's now a firefighter. She yeah. took a permanent job in the fire program. And I'm like, Marissa, get on. Then you can move within the government if you want to switch. If you like fire, you can stay in fire. If you want to go back to biology, you can apply and switch to a biological job, but take that job while you have the opportunity if this is what you want to do, if you want to work for the Fish and Wildlife Service. Yeah, that's very interesting to me. And I've watched Tori do what she's doing. And there's like a, a plotted path that is not the same for any two people no. of where you want to wind up. And that is that is hard to process because we're so used to, well, you go to this school, you do this major, you check that box, that box, and that box, and boom, you've got it. And people will understand what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of times these job descriptions, it's, it's hard to have an elevator speech. Oh, yeah. Um, even my own family a lot of times don't understand and haven't, hasn't, don't understand what I do for a living. Uh, you know, not my husband and children, but other family members. I had a cousin call me once and we were actually on our way up to, I was going into a meeting in, in Virginia and she goes, well, what are you going up to the meeting for? And it was up to the, to the training center. And I said, well, I'm, I'm going up there so that I can sit down with a bunch of scientists and they can explain to me why through the choices that I made on management on St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge, I nearly extincted a salamander and how not to do that anymore. And she just sits there and she goes, oh, wow. I just kind of finally realized what you do for a living. I mean, <laughs> like, you know, um, and, and even my mother, I was, when I was a law, I was a law enforcement officer as a other duties as a sign for 21 years. And, and I was going somewhere and she goes, not be careful out there, honey, because there's not really a lot of law enforcement people out there in the, in the rural areas. And I'm like, mom, that's, I am the law enforcement <laughs> person in the rural areas. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fine. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I completely understand her perspective because yeah. um, because I have that that feeling too of like, well, you're kind of out there by yourself a lot. Oh, so yeah. you're doing it these is. projects and you're by yourself. You're uh, do, the law enforcement. You're by yourself. So how do you how do you handle that mentally? Of you, you not only have to do your project and your job, but you got to take care of yourself. So how do yeah, you handle that? Like I explained, uh, all of all of what we do in the refuge system, and particularly we talked about fire and law enforcement, is just risk management. Um, you're you're looking at the risks that you take, and it's like I explained to her. I said when I go out in the field or I go work, I take a calculated risk because I know what the risks are. 
So in my mind, I'm mitigating those risks. If I'm going to an area where there may be a lot of venomous snakes, I'm wearing snake boots. If I'm out in the ponds, I'm looking for alligators so that I don't step on one or, or you know, get on top of one without him expecting it. If I'm doing law enforcement, I'm managing all those risks associated with law enforcement. On fire, we're looking at the risk and saying, okay, we may have a house nearby, so we're going to burn on a certain wind or we're going to burn under certain conditions so that we don't burn towards that house or or we're protecting our endangered species. You know, red cockaded woodpecker trees have to be cleared around before we burn so they don't burn up. So we don't negatively impact the endangered species that we're burning to improve the habitat for. So everything that we do, we're constantly thinking about risk management. How can we mitigate any problems that we might have when we step out of this office and go out into the field? Wow. That's and then something unusual happens and we have yeah. to do that. You know, it's like, okay, now that will okay, <laughs> add that to the next list of risk management yeah. things to talk about. Great. You were prepared um, that time, but not for Yeah. That. So yeah. things still happen, but we do try to, you know, we we spend a lot of time working with people that are coming through this profession talking about risk management. And that that's the important thing to understand is that everything we do has a risk and everything that you do in your regular life has a risk. My mother's like, you know, she used to work for Walmart and she's like, you could go out in the woods and, and this, this, and this could happen. And I'm like, yeah, and you could walk into Walmart and a shooter could be in there in the morning when you get there and take and, and, and shoot up the store. And you don't know that. I said, I know my risks and I work to mitigate my risks. I said, you don't consciously think of mitigating risks. And so that's, that's kind of the difference between I think us and, and the, and the, rest of the world is that we're consciously thinking on how to mitigate risks. So do you take that mindset to your daily life outside of the refuge? And, and when you were parenting, was there this overload thinking in your mind? Not really. I mean, it's the same thing. You think ahead and, and talk to the, the, my children know about risk taking and, and looking at risks and doing things and and thinking things through and what what is the safe and where do we go? And um, yeah, so you do carry it over, but it's not a I guess when you're, you're thinking of risk and mitigation aspects, it's not a panic. It's OK. Here's what I do if this happens. Here's here's what I should do if this happens. Um my husband one time was watching a, I don't know if you saw the thing when Steve Irwin took his, his uh, son into a crocodile cage and he was like, what do you think of that? And I'm like, what I think of that is I'm really glad that when I was raising my children, there was no one following me around with a camera. Yeah. Because <laughs> what I did. And he goes, you never did anything dangerous with our children. And I'm like, just believe that honey. And our life will go a lot easier. I said, I didn't do anything That's that great. I would consider dangerous because I knew the risks and I had mitigated the risks. Yeah. But my kids were standing over diamondback rattlesnakes around alligators, around snakes in the wolf pen, helping me clean up wolf poop and, you know, all kinds of things that they did that other people would look at me and say, you did what with your child? Uh, but yeah. they grew to lo- they loved it and and really enjoyed being able to do that kind of stuff. But yeah, the same thing, mitigated risk. Don't squat yeah. down in front of the wolf, honey, because you might look like a target that way. Stand up tall and big. <laughs> but it's the having the knowledge, having the yeah, the knowledge given to you that that allows you to to do that. 
I, you know, people have wondered why, how I let Tori do some of the things that she does. And she's had some amazing experiences. One is I'm glad I didn't know exactly what she was doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, until maybe after the fact, mm-hmm. but, um, but another is I know that she has surrounded herself with people such as yourself being experts knowing, and she's shut her mouth and listened. Yeah. And so she's been able, I feel like that she's going in prepared for those, um, those calculated risks. And I mean, they had, they had something happen at one of the um, um, areas that she interned and uh, they had a criminal loose on the um, property and they were looking for him and, and the law enforcements came in and, and I remember her telling me, they looked at her and said, can you use the gun? And she's like, of course. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, then, you know, we're going to kind of put you in charge right here while we go there because she knew what she would have to do if, you know, the process took it to that point. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I remember an alligator, uh, episode that she was involved in and, (laughs) and her question of, okay, if the two things that I'm seeing move simultaneously. That's one, right? Yes. <laughs> one. How far apart are they, Tori? Ah, uh, significantly. Okay. Yeah. That's the mom. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, but the stories are great. I bet you can be great entertainment at a party oh, yeah. or do they, you have to just stop yourself? No, people will ask and they're like, you really do that? You know, we, we had a thing in our church one time that people ask, what is the, what, what is the craziest thing you've ever done in your life? And I was like, well, you know, if you ask anybody here, most of them think my entire life fits that bill. So <laughs> I'll just pick one. You know? <laughs> but it's like, so you've raised my curiosity. What is the craziest? I don't know. Um, nothing that I really consider crazy. Like I said, I've been in the pens with wolves. Uh, we've handled a lot of wolves. I've been around venomous snakes. I don't handle venomous snakes. I've been in ponds with alligators knowing they were there. You just have to be aware and watch them and, and make sure you're keeping an eye on them. So, you know, things like that, nothing that I would consider. But a lot of people think like you've been in a cage with a wolf. What? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So what do you want to see yourself, um, doing or accomplishing before you retire? And then what do you want to see on, on that side of life of, of what are, what are some more Terry goals? I um We are in the middle of a land acquisition project here at St. Mark's that has been going on um, for about 15 years since about the length of time I've been here. Uh, there are at least three acquisition goals I have on adding more land to the Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, starting to work, finish those up. So I've given myself about three more years before I retire, and hopefully I can finish up those land acquisition goals in there. Um, hoping in that period of time, they'll give me a position here where I can train my replacement to come in uh, to run St. Mark's after I walk away and, and leave it behind. And um, after that, uh, I'll continue train. I train bird dogs. So I'll go back to, to training bird dogs and taking pictures on national wildlife refuges and traveling and potentially volunteering at refuges to come back and continue to do the stuff that I trained to do, but then had to become a refuge manager and do all the administrative stuff. So I hope to volunteer and go back and do the fun stuff. That's great. We've talked about so many different things. Is there something that we haven't touched on 
Terry, that you'd like to make sure that you say? Just to the young people that are out there considering this job, it's a fantastic job. Uh, you know, uh, people think when you think about running a wildlife refuge, you're working with wildlife. We do some wild, hands-on wildlife stuff because we work with endangered species, but most of the time you're managing habitats. So learn about the plants, the species that are out there, the habitats, what maintains them, what you have to do to get them in the condition that they should be in and um, just be fluid. Yeah, I love that. Fluid because flexible is too rigid. Too rigid. <laughs> that, is, that is great. Um, if you had one superpower and you had it for 24 hours, you can use it professionally or personally. What superpower would you choose and uh, how would you use it and why would you choose it? What superpower would I choose? I really don't know. I kind of feel like I have a superpower. It would be working with people on the, on the level as a Christian and bringing them to uh, serving to recognizing God as their savior would be the superpower I would want to have and be able to use that uh, to work with people that don't believe in that. Awesome. Terry, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, they can uh, use my email. It's Terry, T-E-R-R-Y underscore Peacock, P-E-A-C-O-C-K at F-W-S dot gov. Okay. And how do they follow along the refuge? Uh, there is the uh, Friends of St. Mark's and St. Vincent Facebook page, and we also have a web page. So they can get onto the St. Mark's web page under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And just one more thing, if I wanted to be a volunteer in some capacity, is it possible these days or where would you send me? Yes, we are starting to bring our volunteer force back on. So you can contact me at that email if you're interested in volunteering on the refuge. Uh, we're bringing people in slowly to see how the mix works. We've, we've had our interns here the entire COVID outbreak. So we have been using some volunteers the entire time, but now we're starting to, to look at if, if we don't have another variant yeah. <laughs> crop up, we're looking at bringing volunteers back in and starting to use our volunteer corps because we really need our volunteers to be able to move things forward. That's important to know. Yeah. Thank you, Terry. It's been absolutely awesome. And thank you Thanks. for being here. I enjoyed it. Find Stacked Keys Podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes, or anywhere you get your favorite podcast listen. You'll laugh out loud, you'll cry a little, you'll find yourself encouraged. Join us for casual conversation that leads itself based on where we take it, from family, to philosophy, to work, to meal prep, to beautifully surviving life. And hey, if I could ask a big favor of you, go to iTunes and give us a five rating. The more people who rate us, the more we get this podcast out there. Thanks. I appreciate it. Song, song, hey, I'm gonna put on my boots and move.